This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Many universities worldwide hope to internationalize and push faculty to produce knowledge across disciplines. That's easier said than done. My guest today, Angela Last, looks at these university fads and finds difficult ethical dilemmas that scholars must overcome. Angela Last is a lecturer in human geography at the University of Leicester. Angela is an interdisciplinary researcher in the field of political ecology, drawing on her background in art and design and science communication to investigate environmental controversies and geographical knowledge production. She has been writing the blog Mutable Matter since 2007. Angela Last, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me. So today, many universities are embracing this idea of internationalization. How would you go about defining that term with respect to universities? I think it's quite interesting how the term is being defined versus how the term is being put into practice. Um, The definition, if you look at different universities, um, internationalization strategies are usually part of the general sort of university strategies. And it's usually about research and teaching and sort of how to reflect this sort of more global university and And I think they usually define it in terms of creating a more global environment, something that's in tune with the the globalized world, um, both in terms of research and teaching. Um, But in in practice, it's usually quite um, sort of economically driven. So it gives quite an interesting, um, I would say, dissonance, uh, partly because um, a lot of the activities around making the curriculum more inclusive, for instance, uh, or sort of what people call diversifying the curriculum, is often quite disconnected from official strategies, although that differs from university to university. In in what way would it differ? So sometimes it's more like a bottom-up movement from activists, (laughs) educators or students, who are arguing almost against... I can't really say universities. I think, again, it differs. Sometimes people are arguing against um, effectively. I mean, there's another thing that plays into that, which is a, another kind of dissonance, which is quite interesting, um, that universities are often, I mean, I'm here based in the UK, so universities are trying to sell a British curriculum uh, to overseas students, but at the same time, they want to sort of expand their markets to um, non-white UK students, and also then there's a demand, for instance, in the curriculum, not only include white authors, like it's been done for a long time, especially white male authors, and there's a bit of a dissonance, because on the one hand, universities are catering to an expectations of the white British education versus them, which is like the exact opposite, basically. And economic concerns that uh, can create some kind of interesting, let's say, call it that, conditions. Yeah, so what you're kind of saying here is that there's the universities, there's management levels, there's the administrators who are putting together these strategic plans that have, in a sense, very empty rhetoric around internationalization, world-class universities and excellence and I mean, whatever those end up meaning is is quite vague and difficult to necessarily define. Excellent. But you're you're kind of yeah. making a point that these administrators, what they see as the value of internationalization, is actually sort of the economic side of it. Is that what you're sort of saying? I mean, because of the the increasing privatization of the university, economics, I I think, the driving factor for pretty much anything, um, because obviously universities 
have to survive in, in the current um, economic climate. I started education in the UK in 1998, which was exactly the year where they introduced tuition fees. So, I mean, things have been going on a bit before, but I think people are still experimenting more than they perhaps have been in other countries, such as the US, where they have had tuition fees for um, a longer time. And it's also a slightly different system and, and political setup. So in terms of, say, UK universities, how does internationalization actually increase money coming into the university? International students have to pay very um, high fees. In addition, UK universities have started to have either collaborations with, um, for instance, Chinese universities, uh, or they have their own campuses abroad to be able to tap into that market, really. So, so it's just about getting more students into these universities? Um, effectively, yes. I mean, on the one hand, you know, that's obviously an issue. But what you're also saying is that there's sort of this bottom-up sort of approach where educators see a value in diversifying curriculum of internationalizing the university. So can you talk a little bit more about what does that look like from an educator's perspective? You know, what's the value of internationalization? I think one of the first things I do when I start at a new university or when I speak to colleagues from other universities um, who are interested in working on what they call internationalizing the curriculum or diversifying, or some people call it um, decolonizing, which is a very problematic term, but has also some sort of added aims, um, is kind of to look at internationalization strategies, just to kind of get a sense of what the university is or how they are, are portraying themselves. And um, well, yeah, the educators kind of interested in this case in presenting knowledge differently than it is still currently portrayed in a lot of places. I think a lot of bottom-up movements have portray- uh, have called it a whitewashed curriculum, where it's a sort of very sort of white Eurocentric education. It doesn't acknowledge a lot of the links that uh, have shaped European knowledge from other parts of the world. I mean, you can go quite far back in history, for instance, with um, some sort of a history of science point, where often when people teach, let's say, quantitative methods or something, they go back to the Greeks. But I mean, it's not that the Greeks have sort of existed in isolation and there was no sort of Middle Eastern people who kind of worked on this before. And also, again, a lot of the European uh, Enlightenment and Renaissance was due to a large degree because of refugees offend effectively from the Middle East. Um, and sort of the Roman Empire effectively dissolved. So anyway, you can go as far back as this, but also recent examples. When you look at a topic, like once I was sort of doing some sort of jumping in with some teaching and I looked at a colleague's uh, syllabus and there was a topic on sort of globalization and all the authors were sort of white middle-class men, and I thought, I mean, there are people who have published in English on this, who, from particular countries, or, again, th- that wasn't the only case where I was felt I could, like, name so many authors who also written much more interesting stuff, and why are they not on the syllabus, and it's often connected to either how people have been taught themselves. I mean, if you think about how you put together a syllabus, or what you, where your knowledge comes from, what you know, yeah, there's a lot of, there are a lot of influences that need to be considered. So I, I want to ask a little bit about why universities are trying to internationalize, but not necessarily at that management level, but, you know, why are universities at maybe the educator level really trying to put into practice internationalization? I think 
it's because there's an ongoing alienation of, of students of color at the university, like black students, um, British Asian students, uh, not just because of curriculum issues, but generally university practices. So um, educators want to create a higher sensitivity um, to a lot of these issues. The increasing number of initiatives at British universities to, yeah, to work on this. What sort of challenges do these educators face when they're trying to change that alienation of students of color? I mean, sometimes it's that people, like Funtus myself, are not aware of certain processes that do alienate students. Like, uh, I don't know, for instance, at, at Leicester, my colleague Margaret Byron is working on uh, increased access to student societies, for instance. I mean, they're just, yeah, she's, she's just been writing about this um, to, to give sort of more practical advice. And I think we're too used to basically to what we're doing at universities and not looking at how, I mean, it's not just an issue of um, the race or religion. I think it's also an issue of class that plays into it and how traditional universities have been there to effectively shape or create or maintain an elite. So we have to be mindful of how these practices are still at play and how we sort of unwittingly sometimes participate in them and sometimes we actually, it's not so unconscious, it's, um, it's sort of connected to sort of either our own background, so what we're used to, or because of how sort of the pressures that are on us in terms of our sort of making a career in education. So I want to ask a little bit about another sort of I don't know, fad in higher (laughs) education, like internationalization, another fad that we or I see often is interdisciplinarity, where there's a push to have scholars do interdisciplinary work. Can you tell me what that actually means, in your opinion? Yeah, I think interdisciplinarity is quite a... Yeah, I mean... Uh, I'm I'm an interdiscipl- I, I consider myself an interdisciplinary scholar, having sort of come from art school and having ended up in geography. Uh, I always feel myself uh, feel that I sort of embody that kind of conflict. Um, I think I mean it's often argued that it is actually the the growing complexity of problems that are out there in the world that that necessitate a greater collaboration between disciplines. So it has been argued that because of this the the boundaries between disciplines are becoming a bit blurred. But also, again, I think there's an economic component to it because of the, I mean, knowledge is still effectively tied to economic competition. So so innovation is also playing into that. And interdisciplinarity is part of this drive towards innovation that translates into um, economic success. And so what what does dis- interdisciplinarity actually look like in practice for, for maybe some listeners who don't really comprehend the idea or can visualize it, see it as like some example of it in practice? So, um, for instance, art-science collaboration. So you have uh, artists working with scientists to, for instance, visualize a scientific issue or sometimes even help the scientists in their research with some new techniques, insights, something like this, for instance. There um, is a lot of work also quite helpful um, coming out of science studies, for instance, the medical humanities, something like this. 
And is there any connection between interdisciplinarity and internationalization? To me, there is um, both having to deal in terms of having to deal with the kind of power relationships and economic um, pressures that are inherent in, in current um, academic life, but also because often they are connected in terms of large transnational grants that um, often involve an interdisciplinary component. So grants actually say, do you need to be interdisciplinary? Usually interdisciplinary and international. I mean, I think kind of how they kind of level up in terms of monetary terms. So like a grant would be more likely to be funded or could get more money if it was international and interdisciplinary. Yes, especially because a lot of the research is um, directed at um, what's framed by research councils as global challenges. Um, For instance, in the UK, we have a global challenges research fund, um, which explicitly funds research between Britain and what I consider sort of low-income countries with specific problems. Um, And the fund, for instance, has been under scrutiny um, from especially black academics, such as um, Patricia Noxolo, who's written a, um, sort of a paper on the problems of this fund. What are some of these problems? I mean, having an international component and an interdisciplinary component might sound pretty good, especially if, as you said earlier, there's, you know, problems in the world today are becoming more complex and we need to approach these problems from an interdisciplinary perspective. I mean, that seems pretty good to me. Yes, I think these projects can actually be really good. I mean, they can be, you know, having a a really interesting approach and make people see an issue in a new way. Um, It's not that I'm I'm ruling this out. (laughs) It's more that um, when you put such a grant together, and it's not just how you put a grant together, but but how the grant is being advertised. So, for instance, with the Global Challenges Research Fund, um, a lot of researchers are uncomfortable submitting to it because they feel it reproduces um, the kind of developing world relation in a way that um, reproduces um, a relationship that researchers have been highly critical of. It's a bit like this kind of white savior thing versus a more equal or even reversed relationship where, as we call it, the global south sort of dictates the conditions rather than the other way around, sort of how money is rooted basically. I think that it, it used to be better in terms of how this was framed, and now people feel it has gone back to a rhetoric that they are not comfortable with. What's the rhetoric that people aren't comfortable with? Um, kind of that, yes, as I said, that, how it's being seen more as a global north helping the global south. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't have the sort of text in front of me, but this effectively the essence of that, um, as far as I understand. So another um, aspect of academics today, other than teaching and how you were talking about the, the, the issues of whitewashing the curriculum and international students being seen through an economic lens by a lot of the the management and administrators of universities to increase funds to the university. And beyond the issues of grant writing and some of the the issues of interdisciplinarity and internationalization, uh, in terms of research, can you talk a little bit about the idea of transnational shared knowledge production, which is, it seems to be another aspect of the work that academics are supposed to do? I think people have different interpretations of what shared knowledge means in terms of their relationship with their research partners. So it's basically about 
I mean, some people see it in terms of making things accessible. Some people, as of making their research accessible, like open access, for instance. Some people see it as an aspect of the relationship um, with international partners. How you have the most of equitable working relationships of who is the the principal investigator, so the grant leader, for instance, and who has what kind of say in in the the, the research conditions and the, especially the framing of the questions and also the outputs. And there are many different interpretations. And actually, this, the chapter that I wrote was for a conference on shared knowledge production to exactly discuss what the relationship might be uh, or how different researchers were handling it in their research. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously. Can, can you talk about an example of where a particular form of shared knowledge production is problematic and why it would be so, in your opinion? One of the examples I mentioned in the chapter is around, um, it's around publishing. Maybe not the ideal example, but I think, um, I don't know, for me, a lot of my awareness around so you can call it like power relations in, in research in knowledge production was to participating in the making of a publication. So sort of straight out of my just out of my PhD and asked to be a co-editor on a book. And then the the publisher effectively said, um, "It's an interesting project, um, but we would like to make it an international publication." Um, and we're like, oh, you know, you, you're going quite naive. Well, isn't everything technically international because it's kind of out there? And then, but at the other hand, again, you realize there are different approaches to this. What did the publisher expect when it came back to you saying, we want it to be an international handbook? What what did that mean to them? Um, well, to them, it mainly meant what they called this of the Asian market, which is um, at the time of um, negotiation, it was uh, particularly China. And I don't think this will have changed greatly um, because obviously the economic, again, is economic reasons um, and also a lot of Chinese students coming to the UK, Chinese satellite campuses being opened um, by UK universities. Yeah. So they wanted to sell the book to that market or did they want you to bring in scholars who were from China? Like what what did it actually look like in their mind? Again, it kind of relates to what I mentioned at the beginning that it's um, a bit of a contradiction really. So I'm not entirely sure how that sits with the publisher that on the one hand, uh, British Education is marketed as a particular thing. I don't know how that works. I imagine it to be a bit like Harry Potter type advertising. But <laughs> I mean, this is partly also how how sort of university websites present themselves. On the other hand, it's um it's the appeal to to students. So there's a, the sort of the double appeal that I think people are trying to tap into. On the one hand, what signifies Britishness, which is often white Britishness. Although at the same time, people want sort of an international sort of in inverted commas, more colorful campus or how they present themselves in images. On the other hand, so there's the appeal to what people might be attracted to. But I've spoken to some academics, um, for instance, um, there's a Senegalese colleague who said that some of the students don't actually want to read black authors because they want... They're going there for a sort of white education. I think the, the situation is more complex than saying we want to include these authors for market reasons. I think the situation is more complex. So how did you navigate it? How did you basically take on that term international handbook and navigate, in a sense, ethical dilemmas? There were a lot of times where I was just wanted to drop the project, frankly, because I found it 
such an ethical minefield. Actually, minefield is a good word. <laughs> um, I think initially I was just quite naive and trying to get in touch with some people that just to doing some research on the internet and through other channels and snowballing to get some people on board. And then partly I was like, this is too... I don't know, there was something really un didn't quite feel right because you were asking yourself, for what reasons am I doing this? What are the conditions of my colleague? Let's say if they're working with a, in a vastly different economic system, which doesn't sort of pay for their labor, that technically I'm being paid for my salary here, so we're expected to publish. And it was a really fraught relationship. And sometimes you, that kind of, on the one hand, sort of prevents you from including certain people. On the other hand, you feel like these are not the right conditions in which I can include people. So in some cases, I got in touch with a publisher and asked for if it's possible for payment for some people or I think in general I was also curious about how publishers are true to their mission to internationalize and under what conditions they are prepared to do so. And what did you find? I mean were were they willing to pay scholars from countries where academics aren't paid to publish? I think in some cases I think there's a well, I don't know if, if that's true, but I, I'm, from what I, the sense that I got, there's increasing awareness of conditions. And it's not that publishing houses are monolithic. They've got different people with different commitments sitting in them, and they have economic pressures. They've got some really good uh, people often who are really sort of well-meaning. They're trying to negotiate then again with higher up, and it comes to different results, partly depending on the, the publisher administrations or ethos or size or... There are a lot of factors that play into that. And and in the end, what happened? I mean, did, did you publish this book? Yes, it got published. <laughs> <laughs> it took a lot of time. I think I'm still ambiguous about it. I think partly because I went into it not being as aware of these conditions as I should have been. So now I think taking on any publishing project, for instance, the, the book that this chapter is in that we're talking about, so a very different sort of publishing conditions. I really look into these things if I ever attempted to do an edited collection or sometimes also participating in one. So, I mean, so given this, this world of the academic in the world of the internationalized higher education institution and the striving for shared knowledge production, transnational shared, shared knowledge production, what, in a sort of practical sense, can we do based on your experiences, based on what you've learned? You know, what sort of tips do you have for academics who are trying to navigate this minefield, as you called it earlier? I think the first step for me is always to realize that although sometimes the conditions seem very top down, that you have to negotiate them to, I don't know, keep employment and participate in them, also to realize that you're sort of part of the process that others can sometimes feel that no matter how much you're protesting against how a research council are framing something, there's, I think, a choice in how you participate in, in research, um, how you even frame things, how you collaborate with people. And also, I mean, there's an increasing number of academics who, who get together and write reports trying to argue against certain um, changes that are being made at the moment. Um, I mean, for instance, I mean, it's not directly related, but it's partly also related because it relates to the privatization of the universities. The um, USS strikes here in the UK, which are 
technically around pensions, but have sort of sparked a lot of activism around higher education in general. So I'm ho- I'm hoping that, that the momentum doesn't stop on this one and also mobilizes people into um, other issues. Yeah, there also, for instance, there are groups that, like for instance, um, uh, a lot of the, the authors in the, the Decolonizing the University book that this chapter is published in, affiliated with different initiatives, such as, for instance, people who come from international relations, they have a group, post-colonial, decolonial group or something in that direction, that um, you can sort of join and discuss things. Um, in, in geography, we have uh, the race working group. Um, I think there, there are lots of groups like this where you can discuss things with other scholars, and I think it's really important to have people around you to gorge things, to discuss things, also to support things. Um, yeah, so I would argue to just get together with people and sort of find people who are invested in this and to yeah, just to, to talk to them, just to listen, or especially to listen, just to be on a mailing list maybe or uh, sit in with debates and what kind of, just to share strategies. And also maybe you can put a grant in together and do something different to kind of show how things can be done differently. You also, in, in your chapter, you also sort of call for the act of refusal, that academics should embrace the idea of refusing. Can you explain what you mean by that? I think it's sort of part of that process that, you, I mean, obviously there are pressures because you know, your promotion hangs on research income, um, on certain types of publications that may be especially connected to journals that are published in the North, Global North, so it kind of maintains certain hierarchies. Um, but to kind of, I think there's still, I think people are sometimes a bit too stressed out about what they need to do and then don't think about enough how they still have, at, at present still have a lot of leeway within that. Um, like how they publish, what they publish. And I think to use the kind of control that researchers have or still have um, to yeah, keep on working for a different way of producing knowledge, which is difficult or increasingly difficult. Um, so I haven't been in higher education for long enough to make sort of epic claims, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, that, that would be my recommendation from sort of my position, someone who has been had access to other spaces due to like being a professor or something, may have a different sense of, especially sort of how people can make committees work or even some kind of fraud initiatives uh, around uh, official initiatives around gender or race equality um, can often be used um, with a discussion about this at a conference sort of how you about dirty practices that you kind of mobilize internationalization strategies for better practices in education and although that's technically going against some of the ethics it also kind of tries to be appropriate in the same way that a lot of internationalization is trying to be appropriate more progressive goals. So I think there's a lot of negotiation and a lot of dirty methods that need to be employed. I think it's not possible otherwise, although I'm happy to take other 
advice on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll leave it at that. So Angela, last, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I hope that we can continue to figure out some of these dirty methods to push the university in more just and ethically appropriate ways of, of behaving and stop alienating certain types of students. Thank you for having me. Angela Last is a lecturer in human geography at the University of Leicester. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. An original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.